you're listening to the Trossex Wild Apothecary podcast with me, Rox. Today I'm interviewing Stefan from Nature and Therapy UK. This was formed in 2017 by Stefan in response to the growing need for spiritual and psychological connection to nature and education about how we can learn to respect and include nature in our lives. So Stefan has been exploring wild places for 50 years and trained originally in countryside management and conservation and environmental education. He is qualified in integrative psychotherapist and mountain leader with 25 years experience facilitating individuals and groups in natural environments. Stefan's an associate lecturer in Plymouth University. He teaches the role of nature and benefits of nature immersion for mental health and recovery from trauma on the clinical psychology doctorate training. Stefan is passionate about trees, birds and sacred lands and is a member of the International Society of Nature and Forest Medicine and a member of the Eco-Psychology Network. Okay, hi I'm Stefan Batoris and I run training courses in Shimrinyoku forest bathing. I'm also an ecotherapist and I've been working in nature or with nature since I was a small child. So there's been a kind of progression of my training and work with nature, starting off as a countryside warden, um, working with my local council and then progressing on to become an outdoor activities instructor and also training as a counselor and psychotherapist and kind of trying to combine all of those kind of key factors together some, in some way. So I spent about 20 years experimenting with people working as an instructor but being more interested in the kind of soft skills side of the work so just helping people to unpack their experiences and to make sense of what they really enjoyed about it which is which was largely to do with being out in nature and being in really wild places and how that impacted on their mental health so that's kind of how I got into it short Great. version so um you do switch, I don't think I can say it. Shirin, Shirin, Rin Yuku, forest Shirin bathing. Yep, yeah, I wondered bathing. if we could start with with that and if you could just explain to people what it is and um, what the, yeah. like, the physical and emotional benefits of it are. Sure, yeah. So it's a Japanese word, Shimonyoku. It means forest bathing um, or forest shower. Um, it doesn't involve having to take your clothes off. What it's referencing is really this sense of being completely immersed in another environment, in this case, the forest, and how the forest really affects all of our senses. So a forest bathing walk would involve us going out into the woods, walking only a very short distance and, and walking quite slowly, but just allowing all of our senses to kind of unfurl and unravel and, and come out and meet the, the central experiences that the forest has to offer. And so it's not just a meditative kind of event. It's been proven through the research that's come out of Japan that these types of walks have a hugely beneficial effect on our physiology and our psychology. So over a period of now about 30 years, um, they've been running experiments and research, taking blood and saliva samples 
and seeing the, the sort of baseline and afterwards effect of these forest bathing walks on people from different areas of life, young people, working class people, uh, working age people and elderly people as well. So um, they've come up with a body of evidence that shows that even a two hour walk in the forest has a long term impact, beneficial impact on our health and well-being. That's really interesting. So, um, and I believe it has a lot of in the, like effect on your immune system as well, doesn't it, to improve? Yes, one of the primary discoveries that they found, and something which I, I still regard as a kind of miracle, is that uh, a day's walk in the forest boosts your immune system for anything up to a month afterwards. Wow. And this boost to the immune system is, is quite specific. So what the forest does is it increases the number of what are called NK cells within the bloodstream. So that these NK or natural killer cells are specialist cells that are in our bloodstream and are going around our bodies 24 hours a day. And what they do is they track down any cells in us which are diseased, damaged, tumorous, or viral cells, infected cells. They target them and then they eliminate them and they're removed from our system through our lymph. Um, so that's going on all the time. We don't even need to think about it. But because our lifestyles that we have as, uh, as you know, living in a kind of urbanized, industrialized world, our immune systems have become compromised. And so our ability to detect and eradicate damaged cells from our systems, that has become compromised too. The other thing I need to say is that cancer cells have the capacity, have the ability to disguise themselves from these um, NK cells. And so a cancer cell can hide in plain sight and pretend that it's a normal healthy cell. But what they found is with the forest bathing that the, there are specific types of NK cell, uh, three, three particular types, and those are significantly elevated after a walk in the forest. And it's these specific NK cells that have the capacity to detect the hidden tumor cells, the hidden That's cancer amazing. cells, and they and they eliminate them. That's amazing. And do they know how how that how that happens? How it works? Well, it's um, it's partly to do with the chemicals that the trees emit. So, all plants, including trees, create chemical substances called allomones, and these chemical substances are designed to protect the plant from attack, either by insects or herbivores or by fungal attack. And they produce these chemicals in the roots and the branches and the leaves of the plant. Now, in the case of trees, particularly conifers, they release these chemicals into the atmosphere to repel insects and fungal attacks. Mm -hmm. These very same chemicals that the trees produce, these phytoncides, as they're called, when we breathe them in, they protect us from attack. 
And that's the miracle. Yeah, that is. <laughs> that's amazing. And it's it amazing that just one walk can last for, for such a long time as well. Yeah. Yeah. And they're, they're, um, the research coming out of Japan has proven that, that, that a day's walk can last up to a month. So imagine that as a, as a GP's prescription yeah. <laughs> for health. Just walk a day in the woods uh, and that will last you a month, one day a month. I thought I, I read somewhere that, was it in, I can't remember now, was it Shetland or somewhere that somebody, one of the, the GPs had started prescribing nature? I can't remember. Okay, yeah, 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 quite possibly, yeah. yeah. Just recently. And um, when, when you say that you, you're going out and you're walking very, like, very slowly in the certain practices that you, that you do, is there some, is it, can you tell people you know what kind of practices that maybe they could go out and do themselves sure mostly it's about slowing down and so when I work with my students and I say what what have you enjoyed most and they've just said it's been the slowing down and one of the most popular exercises that we've done with people is the one where they just have to lie down on the ground and do nothing <laughs> It's very simple, but it's incredibly effective. I mean, who who would go out into the forest and just lie down? It's like almost like we need permission to do that. And yet if you go in a forest and you just lie down on your back, looking up through the trees, it has the most incredibly calming and reinvigorating effect on the whole system. Mm -hmm. So one of the exercises that I've designed, we get people to lie down on their backs and just see how much you can sink down into the ground, literally as if it's a, you're sinking into a soft pillow. Just let your body sink deeper and deeper into the earth until you're kind of mingling with the roots of the trees and just lie there for a while and just let your breathing calm down, let your whole body just slow down and that connection with the earth is what we miss. It's what we need as, as human animals. Yeah. It's, it's primal. Yeah, because we've become very disassociated from that, haven't we? Especially with living in cities and everything. Yeah, very much so. And I think in order to cope with living in the city, we have to, and I'm sure lots of people will identify with this, we have to kind of keep our senses contained and shut down. Mm -hmm. We're not designed to live like that. So if our senses were all completely open in our busy lives, we would, we would get destroyed. Mm -hmm. we'd be, we're just too vulnerable. So we shut down our senses and put this kind of armoring around ourselves in order to cope with our daily lives. And so when we go to the forest, it's an invitation and an opportunity to go, ah, let the senses come alive. So Shimranyaku walk, is an invitation to open the senses. And so the, the exercise I just explained of lying down, that you could say that that was in some ways a tactile exercise because we're experiencing the contact of the earth on, on the, backs, the back of our bodies. With that exercise, I also ask people, I invite them to, to turn over and lie on their front as well. And how does that feel to lie on your front on the earth? 
is it more comfortable, less comfortable? What feelings does it trigger off? So we're just being curious. Every time we go to the forest, we're coming with a, a sense of curiosity. And what can we discover about the woods? What can we discover about ourselves in our connection with the trees and, and the, the environment that we're in? And it's through our senses that we, we learn about our environment. It's our senses which give us, which feedback information, which builds into our perception in our brain. So, yeah, sorry, go on. I, no, I was just thinking like in the, I was watching, um, was it Tai Wai, the, the film by Bruce Parry? And it was, he was talking about how the, the people in the forest, you know, how they had so many of their senses alive. And we would have been like that in the past, you know, to track the, the animals or to track where, where our food was, or um, just to even just walk and live in the forest, we would have probably had a lot more senses alive and open than we do, you know, now, <laughs> like you said. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, you're absolutely spot on there, Rox. Yeah, yeah, it's like our senses were developed in the forest mm -hmm. and our senses were developed, one, to protect us from being eaten, mm -hmm. from becoming the prey, but also helping us to detect where our food was. Mm -hmm. So our senses were really alive and kind of zingy the whole time. Um, so, and, and our, our senses were extended right out from our bodies into the forest environment. Whereas now they're contracted right in tight to us, mm. which is not how we're designed. Yeah, that's really interesting. I've just been listening, researching and listening to a lot of stuff about um, like trauma training and a lot of that is about that kind of grounding and feeling the ground and the earth beneath you and that kind of um, somatic experiencing of expanding the body and starting to let things expand because the trauma you just automatically hold everything in and it's quite scary to open everything up and um, so but and I know that you do also ecotherapy so I was, is, is that different to um, the forest bathing? It's a slightly different focus. Ecotherapy is more is more a one to one process. Okay. So, um, we would go out into the forest after a couple of sessions, say in in the therapy room, getting to know each other and getting that bond of trust to build. We would then agree to go out into the forest and work, and it's very much um, walking along side by side and trusting that nature will provide us with a mirror or a symbol of the issue that the person is, is focusing on within themselves. Even if they don't actually know what that issue is, nature provides some kind of symbol or metaphor for that internal experience. So the person doesn't have to talk directly about the trauma. Mm -hmm. Because as we're walking through the forest, maybe we find a dead squirrel on, on the ground in front of us. So we can't ignore it. There's the dead squirrel. So we stop and talk about this dead squirrel. And in some way, it triggers off a memory or a feeling within, within the client that they then feel free to talk about that experience. We're still not talking about the trauma. We're talking about something relating to the squirrel. So we're not having this head-to-head -head kind of, um, it, 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 sometimes 
that that therapy to client kind of interaction can be too much mm-hmm. whereas when we're talking about nature we're actually working in a triad so we're talking mm-hmm. about something that we've objectified outside of us that feels safer to talk about but it's still having an incredible healing effect deep inside the person mm-hmm. does that make sense yeah and I mean I guess you're still getting the benefits of what you were just talking about about the forest bathing as well and is it also an assist- a somatic experience for them as well then that they feel start to feel something maybe awakening or something in their body that releases the trauma it is but it's very much from from my side it's very much driven by them and what I'm observing of their relationship with nature okay. So I'm really just there as a kind of guide and interpreter of those experiences. So, or also, you know, if if they're walking along and they're missing something, um, then I might just say, hang on a minute, stop. Have you noticed this? Mm-hmm. These butterflies keep landing on your head. What's that about? Mm-hmm. You know, let's just stop and, and examine what's happening with these butterflies landing on your head. Okay, you know, that's interesting. So that somatic experience is, is really what's happening as a result of an invitation from nature mm-hmm. for them to come and play. Mm-hmm. So the, the, sometimes the trauma can be, be released almost through the back door because something, something joyful can happen or something which has such a deep resonance within that person that that it's enough to release the entanglement of the trauma. We don't need to go to it direct. Sometimes we do. You know, I've had that experience where people have come across something in nature that has really hit the nail on the head of what that trauma is. And it's become quite an acute thing to to work with in the woods, but it's always been manageable. Mm And it, There's a healing. Is that quite, I suppose that might be quite difficult to do by yourself just because maybe you'll miss a lot of things or something that you could do It's something you yourself can do. as well on your walk? Yeah, absolutely. You can do it yourself. All you need to do is just slow down, mm-hmm. just slow it all down. And once you slow it down, you begin to notice. And once you start to notice, then you notice some things seem brighter than other things or some things seem to be stronger in some way your 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 attention is drawn to a particular plant or um, a particular effect of the sun coming through the leaves and once you allow yourself to surrender to that process um you can often find that you don't even actually know where you end up in the forest. You know, you just, you're just kind of wandering aimlessly, but there's a, a very deep therapeutic effect that's taking place there. Mm. Um, it's just a question of just slowing everything down so that you begin to tune into the, the, the kind of rhythms of the natural world. Yeah. Because the, the invitations to come and play are always there. Mm-hmm. But just when not we're, paying attention. <laughs> well, when we're walking through the forest on our mobile phones, mm-hmm. we're not going to notice those subtle invitations. Yeah. We have to go willing to surrender in some way. 
And then is it looking for, are you looking for symbolism in what you see? No, you're not, you're not really looking, but you're, you're not looking, but you're allowing yourself to be open to seeing the difference. Mm -hmm. It's a passive mm -hmm. okay. process. Okay. What, because you might, you might trip over a tree root and land in the mud on your face. And that can be the most therapeutic thing that could have happened to you. <laughs> mm -hmm. But you wouldn't go looking for that. <laughs> yes. <laughs> True. <laughs> um, I'm just, I had some. Yeah, so you mentioned, you might have already talked about this, but I've just written down that you mentioned on your website, um, there's a, a few different headings, like ecological awareness, mindfulness exercises, embodied presence, sensory attunement, and then communication with the other than the human world. I was wondering yeah. if you kind of unpack them a little bit. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we've, we've, we've sort of, we've kind of gone through them. some, yeah. we've gone through some of them. Yeah. So um, what was the first one again? <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> um, the ecological awareness. What can I talk about? Yeah. So it's becoming quite a big thing now for people to want to go out into nature as uh, as a therapeutic practice and and i encourage that but i think it's important that when we go out into nature to to bring therapy out there with with our clients that we have an understanding of what's going on out there we're not just randomly going out into some woods without any knowledge of of what's happening in nature. The ecology of a forest has taken millions of years to develop. Each of those plants and animals has found its specific niche within that forest environment. And each of those plants and animals, each one of those plants and animals are necessary to form the intricate web of forest ecology or woodland ecology or wherever you happen to be. And I think it's really important that we spend some time learning about those plants and animals and, and how they interact with each other because it, it lends a depth to our work. And it also shows a respect and a reverence to nature because we're bothering to get to know more about her. Yeah. So that ecological awareness, I think, is an important facet of our work. It's no good just being a good therapist if we don't also have some intimate relationship and knowledge of nature ourselves and of the ecology that we were part of and we have the illusion that we're no longer part of. Yeah. Was the next, the next one was yeah, mindfulness exercises. But I think you said that about walking mindfully and quite slowly. Yes, this might sound a bit controversial, but I actually I actually encourage people to walk mindlessly rather than mindful mindfully, because um, the mind always wants to be involved. The mind always wants to be in charge and in control, and actually the best, not the best, but the 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 most profound experiences that I've had in nature have been when my mind has been completely switched off. When I've been so absorbed in the 
the textures and smells and sounds and qualities of that environment that that the mind has kind of become tranquilized mm. and that is the effect of some of the phytoncides these forest chemicals that when we breathe them in they actually tranquilize a lot of the centers in the brain okay. so that again once we walk in the forest another way that we become soothed mm -hmm. yeah mm. that's that one what's next, next? <laughs> embodied presence is the next one embodied presence we've talked about that so it's about again um when we go on a, a shimanyaku walk we we come into our bodies we come into our physicality we put our feet sometimes if we can our bare feet on the earth. We say, here I am, I'm a living being and I'm connecting with this living world around me. I'm here, I'm not thinking about what I'm cooking for supper. I'm not thinking about what I'm gonna wear to Sarah's wedding. I'm thinking about right in this moment, who am I? I'm a living, breathing, organic being in the woods part of the whole ecosystem as well aren't you part of the yeah. whole ecosystem yeah exactly exactly and i think the sensory achievement we kind of talked about didn't we tuning in but it's not just it's tuning in with all your senses isn't it like every all the senses that we don't normally even think about absolutely yeah exactly yes yeah, so it's not just the five senses that we know about but also bringing in the other senses so you know our, our proprioception or um, you know, sometimes I think also it's important to bring our kind of psychic sense mm -hmm. into play in, in, in the woods so that we, mm -hmm. we've become more attuned to the, the inner voice of our being in the woods. We listen to the wisdom that we have inside ourselves. Mm -hmm. um, so that's, that, that for me is very important aspects of, of this work. Yeah. And and I, and I guess that, that kind of leads into the communication with the other than human world, because that'll kind of open you up to things that you might not, you might normally just shut down from. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, we, we, um, we live in a very kind of hubristic world. We, you know, we have a kind of arrogance about us that assumes that we're, you know, we're masters of nature and, and we're at the top of the pyramid. And actually when we acknowledge that we have a dependence on nature, then it, it shifts that, that attitude. Mm -hmm. And by acknowledging that we share this planet equally with other creatures, um, we develop that sense of humility and reverence for the natural world you know our all of our lives depend on a really thin layer of soil mm -hmm. to provide us with all our food and we forget that because yes. we don't have to grow things ourselves anymore we just go to the supermarket and buy it mm -hmm. so we've 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 forgotten our reliance on the natural world and um you, know, you mentioned bruce parry earlier on and these people who you know, people who go to other countries and meet indigenous tribes 
there's one common factor that's involved. These people were the earliest ecologists because they realized their dependence on the natural world for their survival. And so that communication with the other than human world is, is always about giving thanks, mm -hmm. showing gratitude to the natural world for enabling us to continue to live. Mm -hmm. And I think it's important that we get back to something like that. Yeah, yeah I agree. <laughs> Especially in these times when everything's all a bit <laughs> crazy. Um, I'll get to that later. Um, we're talking about, I think also you mentioned about tree law and tree attunement. I was just wondering about that as well. Yeah. I think for me, um, tree law is, you know, we, uh, the, the Shimonyoku stuff that came out of Japan is very much part of the Japanese culture. Mm. And it's felt important to, to adapt it and modify it to this country. And I think that particularly Celtic tree law and the Druids and those traditions uh, are embedded in the, the landscape of this country, in the, in the magic yeah. of, of our environment here. And I think it's important to have some knowledge or an understanding of, of our own trees and, the, and the, the kind of myths and stories that surround the trees of, of our land, whether it's, um, you know, Yggdrasil, the, uh, the world tree, the ash tree, or whether it's tales about yew trees um, or the, the mighty oak, you know, each tree in this country has a particular quality and a particular personality to it. And there are so many stories associated with it. You know, the willow tree, um, they've all got kind of certain magical qualities. And I think it's really useful to, to know and understand those aspects when we go out and we meet a tree we get to know a tree um, we understand more about its own history and mythology do you um do you have um like a, a good book that you would recommend that talks about that like the, the mythology and the um yeah there's one um let me just let me just grab it This is a, a, a really lovely book um, by Ian, Sidding, Ian Siddons Heggingworth, and it's called Environmental Arts Therapy and the Tree of Life. So it's a monthly guide for your soul's journey on this beautiful earth. So he goes, he kind of goes through the Celtic tree calendar starting in November, and he basically just runs through the year looking at the, the kind of sacred lore of the trees and the, the cycle of the seasons. Okay, great. Um, I'm going to look uh, So what was his surname, did you say? Siddons, S-I-D-D-O-N-S. Okay. Heggingworth, H-E-G-I-N-W-O-R-T-H. And he lives in Exeter. Okay. Um, 
I've been trying to find a good book about tree law. My uh, kids are both named after trees. I've got Oak and Rowan. So. <laughs> oh, lovely. Oh, how fantastic. And actually where we live, we're in the Trossachs. So we're yeah. like in amongst all the, the like the, this pine and forest, which is, and it does, it makes a huge difference, you know, when, if we're like all are stuck in the house and then you can, there's a difference. All our, well, maybe we're all starting to get all, you know, pent up and anxious and, arguing and stuff and I mean they're like toddlers but as soon as they go outside and as soon as I get outside you can just say everybody's energy just kind of you yeah. know settles yeah. <laughs> yes absolutely yeah so I was actually also I was wondering if you could talk about um you did had you had like an ecotherapy project that you did with the NHS where you're working with people with severe enduring mental health needs so I was just wondering if you could talk what? about that and just like what kind of effects and benefits you actually saw that was a really interesting project, actually. Um, it was the first of its kind in this country, I think. And what we did was we we ended up being absolutely deluged with referrals from all of the different departments within Plymouth NHS as a whole, particularly from uh, residential um, centres, from the forensic team, from... Um, people who were um, under kind of psychic, psychiatric supervision. So people with, with quite severe uh, psychological and mental health issues were referred on to our project. We met every Wednesday for a whole year. So once again, seeing that cycle of the seasons through mm -hmm. to complete the, the annual cycle. And what I did was I took Maslow's hierarchy of needs as being our foundation. So for those of you who don't know, Maslow's hierarchy is saying that we have a, a kind of hierarchy of needs in order to survive as a human being. Um, obviously we need to breathe uh, and then we need water and then we need food and then we need um, clothing and shelter and warmth. And then our self-actualization needs uh, are those that come last, sort of towards the bottom of the pyramid. Um, so I took that system and then applied it to the, the group of people that we were working with to create a tribe. So what I encouraged them to do was to become uh, very much a tribe together, um, looking at Maslow's hierarchy. I mean, they they didn't need to know that's what we were doing. They just needed to know that when they turned up each Wednesday, we needed to make some shelter if it was raining. We needed to get a fire going. We needed to cook some food and make some hot drinks. So there's very basic down to earth practical tasks initiated a really powerful healing process within them. And the majority of these people had been within the system, within the NHS for over a decade. And they'd been really cotton wooled. They'd not been given any responsibility to do anything. They're not been trusted with anything. And their, their trips out consisted of going shopping or going to play snooker or something like that, going to bingo, whatever. And so suddenly they were out in the woods and if they didn't get a fire going, 
then they wouldn't be able to cook their food. They wouldn't be able to make a hot drink. Mm -hmm. And so if it was, if it was the turn of two people to to get that fire going, they knew that the other people within the group were relying on them to make that fire. So they had to get it right. So they had a responsibility within the tribe and that's made a colossal difference. So after a year of being together and we did some really interesting things, you know, each week we would do something different. So one week we might go on a, a long distance walk on the moor or, or along the coast. The next week we might do some mindfulness and walking meditation. The next week we might do some falconry. Um, the next week we would be helping the national park rangers to do some conservation work or uh, round up wild ponies. We we went to this place where there's a waterfall and we all jumped in the waterfall at dawn. Um, we did all sorts of things. We went up Mount Snowden um, once. I came with an expectation that these people could do anything. Mm -hmm. And so they were given, you know, lots, you know, they were given sharp tools bill hooks and axes and bow saws to work with. And I trusted them. And it was interesting because it was probably the only occasion where you had together people with such a vast range of, um, you know, I, I don't like these labels, but you know, with these different mental health issues. So people with, you know, schizophrenia, um, borderline personality disorder, um, people with eating disorders, um, people who'd suffered from sexual abuse and sexual abusers in the same group. So it was a complete mix of all these diverse people, people with PTSD, people with depression, you know, a real mix. And, and it worked, you know, it was, it was amazing. And they, and they just bonded together. And, and when the course finished uh, for, for each cohort for each year, we tried to make sure that they went on to pursue the particular areas that they were interested in that they developed over that year. So for some people, um, it was the opportunity to join walking groups. For other people, it was to get involved in horticultural therapy projects. For other people, it was an opportunity to find ways to support others to come out into nature. So we just tried to support them to get a, a, a kind of placement mm -hmm. out where they, again, they managed to maintain that level of responsibility. And did they find that made a big difference to how they how they were, well, they, like their, their mental health? Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, totally. because because they could see some tangible success. They could see, I've achieved this, you know. I would tell you that the majority of them didn't have the capacity to walk. The, the most they'd walked was from the minibus across the pavement into the shop and back. So just, just, just simply going for a walk on Dartmoor was a colossal challenge. Mm -hmm. 
And for some of them, it was too much. And they had to learn how to walk again. It took a year. So th this is the level that we're dealing with, that people, when they've been within that system for so long, mm -hmm. they just become completely shut down. And the system keeps them shut down with the medications and with the expectations. I suppose for the system, it's kind of easier, isn't it? It's kind of easier to control people that are just, just kind of shove them in the place and <laughs> I know and that's I know that obviously people are trying to help them but I don't know <laughs> yeah we we were we worked with one ward and I won't tell you that the, the, the name of the hospital but the attitude on the ward was to medicate everybody so that they slept until two o'clock in the afternoon yeah. and then they'd get them up and give them some food and do whatever they needed to do. But that was the protocol on that ward was to keep them asleep, medicated until two o'clock in the afternoon so that they could get on and do their tasks in the morning, I guess, or have some peace and quiet. That's quite amazing in this day and age, because you, you think about that, kind of, you hear stuff like that from like the 60s or 70s or something, but you think that that's kind of all, you know, finished. <laughs> You're yeah, not no, drugging everybody up so much. No. That was going on. And what we managed to do is we managed to um, go in and support the staff to change that regime. So the, the, um, the woman who was assisting on the ecotherapy project, then we supported her to go in and get these people up earlier in the morning and get them out walking mm -hmm. and change that regime. And is the project still continuing is it still going on no the the difficulty i had was that the the nhs is quite fickle and so they will shift their funding priorities mm -hmm. at a moment's notice and i think i won't I'm, I'm not being cynical here but i think that we ticked we ticked boxes of diversity that they weren't able to tick but then after a couple of years, they shifted the emphasis of their funding more onto um, kind of primary care um, situations. Mm -hmm. And so it was harder and harder to gauge their support with the project. And without their support, um, it, it was already becoming quite difficult to, to hold it all together. Mm -hmm. and and deliver a good quality program to to the client group it's such so, a shame it seems like the kind of thing that would be really beneficial that could be rolled out you know across the country <laughs> yeah i mean i was getting i was getting referrals four years after the course finished oh, well. <laughs> yeah so um we are setting up a new project actually um starting in march we're working um, through social prescribing um, we're setting up a project called Woods for Wellness, um, working with people with depression and anxiety. Okay. So the ecotherapy project ethos lives on. That's good. And I think at the moment there's like a massive just global trauma of anxiety. So I think Absolutely. it's something that would really, yeah, is really beneficial right now. We've got, at the moment I, I heard that we've got 6 million people on antidepressants in this country. Yeah. That that's, a tenth, <laughs> that's a tenth of our population. I think even, I mean, just the, the 
the pandemic as well probably is just exacerbating that for the people who have already got that and then for people who have never had anxiety and hypervigilance are probably starting to feel a bit more anxious than before because it's really it's quite you know it's, it's quite hard not to when you're kind of just it's quite dissociated from everybody absolutely you know, yeah normal social structures yeah. and things yeah yeah and the isolation mm-hmm. yeah um, so so I was gonna say so with that in mind do you have like some some tips for people that they could that they could do themselves um yeah so um when you go out into nature um what I'm suggesting to people to do is to develop a little path that's your routine and so once a week go on this little path that you take that you've developed like a little circular route and as you go past each of the little places along the route just notice how things are and how things begin to change just notice the little subtle things notice what's growing notice how the smell changes as we get into march and april the the smell of the soil changes as the microbes and bacteria begin to wake up it changes how the soil smells and that comes out into the air mm-hmm. and then we then we get the smell of the new growth of the plants as well so it's that very subtle tuning in mm-hmm. and so we begin to build some structure in our life uh, in our lives based on this little circuit that we do a bit like um uh, badgers do this so every night badgers go out and they walk around the same route okay. just checking how everything is and the male badger um he he goes out and on that route that he takes he has certain key places that he uses as his toilet that kind of marks the boundaries of his territory i'm not suggesting people do that <laughs> but um go out and develop your little circuit and have a little a little routine of going around and noticing things and you might find that you get to this certain bush and every time you get there there's a robin singing and that is just amazing that's all you need mm-hmm. because you've just got that it just gives you that instant connection to nature, to something deep within yourself that knows this. Mm-hmm. And it gives us a, a sense of security that although everything is kind of going to pot in the human world, actually there's something that we can we can trust and rely on in nature. Mm-hmm. Even yeah, though it's continuous, isn't it? The circle kind of continues and it's still, it, the seasons are still gonna happen, whatever's happening to us. Yeah, even though we're doing all we can to destroy them, (laughs) um, they are still there and they are a constant in our lives. Mm -hmm. I think the seasonal connection is really, I find it, I I really like it because you have, there's like a different energy each season. So like when, for me, I thought, you know, when spring comes along, there's this kind of like building and excitement and anticipation that happens. And then, you know, that changes in the summer, it kind of starts to become a bit more kind of, I don't know, fiery, but kind of, calmer at the same time and you know and then I find that for me like projects want to happen in the spring but when it gets to like winter it's you know you start to feel that hibernation of wanting to just actually I don't want to want to do anything and <laughs> yeah yeah that introspection of going going yeah. within and hibernating yeah and I think that helps to like kind of fit your life 
if you can because there is always some way that you can to fit your life into that circle of nature and connecting with what's going on outside yeah and it's interesting that in the culture in in japan they they very much recognize and go with the seasons so they even talk about the seasons on the weather report mm. and um they they change their fashions uh, on a quarterly basis, depending on what, on what season it is of the year, they'll wear different clothes, like okay. in a very in a very specific way. So they they have much closer connection to the seasons, even though they're a, a very urbanized society. Yeah, actually, yeah. For so for people who are in the urban and they can't get out to the countryside, do you have suggestions for them? Because like one thing I did, well, you asked sessions, but one thing I read was that you can. Um, you can even get just by looking at a picture of nature it can kind of start to change your mindset and your, your like your anxiety and depression levels yes that's what that's one of the experiments they did in japan was to get people to look at images of nature and to to then evaluate the effects of that on them on their physiology and psychology and i think that's if if you cannot get out then that's better than nothing or or you know even having some house plants and, and really taking care of those but I would encourage people to get out and even if you live in a very urban area what's really lovely is to go out and see how nature's trying to reclaim that area so yeah. just again just focus in what's that plant growing in a crack in the pavement it's usually something that you can actually eat or you can use therapeutically as well <laughs> yeah yeah exactly yeah mm -hmm. yeah absolutely and um I know there's been a project running nationally where people have have identified all of those edible plants that are living in kind of urban surroundings, um, which I really like. But it's it's also seeing that nature is is always trying to come back in and take over and bring everything back to the the kind of homeostasis of the planet. Mm -hmm. So wh wh wherever we leave anything. Um, nature will reclaim it. Mm -hmm. So when you, when you look at images of Chernobyl, you know, there's just trees and woods growing all around that area now. Nature's reclaiming it. Mm -hmm. And in a, in a, if we live in a really urban area, we can see the pioneers of that process right in front of us. Mm -hmm. That little weed that's growing out of the gutter yeah. or growing out of the crack in the pavement. Mm -hmm that's the vanguard of a huge forest that's coming. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I just, just one last question it was just about um, the importance of getting children out into nature early and if it has, um, or if it's been shown to have like an effect on their like mental, emotional health further down the line when they're adults, if you know there's any. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, it's it's so vital. It almost feels like um, it's so obvious why say it, but I think we do have to say it because I, I grew up in nature and from the age of three, I just went off and wandered around on my own for the whole day. I was gone, out. I mean, if you did that these days, you'd, you'd have social services coming around, yeah. wouldn't you? Um, because our attitudes have shifted so much, I think parents are way too overprotective and overprecious. 
around their children. And children are encouraged to play in what still represents a kind of urban area, like a, a playground, mm -hmm. tends to be still quite an urban thing. And I think it's really absolutely critical that children get to play in wild areas, in areas of woodland, down by rivers. Um, you know, I spent my entire childhood playing in really dangerous places. I was drawn to the most dangerous places. So canals, weirs, um, rubbish tips, <laughs> dis gravel pits, disused industrial landscapes, anywhere where wilderness was reclaiming it. I loved it. And that's where I go. I used to go and play in um, World War II bunkers and things like that that were underground anything that was dangerous. <laughs> the key thing here is that you have to expose your children to danger and risk from a very young age. From, from as soon as they're able to kind of cognitively recognize things, you've got to introduce them to danger and risk. And that's, that's our primary role as parents. That's what we're there to do, is to train the cubs how to play. That's what we should be doing, is getting them to be physically active outdoors and understanding, understanding where that boundary of risk exists. Because if you don't teach it when they're very young, when they're then exposed to risk and danger as teenagers or adults, they haven't had that prior training when their brain is malleable. So they don't know where that edge is. So you have to, when children are very young, you have to teach them about how to use a sharp knife. You have to teach them about fire. You have to teach them about water. You have to teach them about uh, different elements of nature. You know, that's a stinging nettle. Mm -hmm. It will hurt. <laughs> yeah. You know, they'll find out for themselves. But that, for me, that's an, an essential part of their education that most children are just missing. Mm -hmm because they're just put in front of a laptop. Mm -hmm. And yeah, you, you, children need to be outdoors, running around, hurting themselves, getting into trouble, getting dirty, getting covered in soil and mud, because that exposure to the soil and mud exposes them to um, certain germs and bacteria that then develop their immune systems. Yeah. It, yeah. It's kind of, it's pretty obvious, but we, we've, we've just lost it. We've forgotten that. So again, it's back to that disassociation again, though, isn't it? That we've like, I, I, I was, I stayed in the Amazon for a, a while, a couple, for about a month or so. And then um, there was like this, this tribe um, who lived in the Amazon, they came up one, one day and in the, in their canoe. And, you know, I didn't really think anything of it. And then I saw them the next, I saw them the next day and they were wearing like just a t-shirt and I was thinking they look really odd and then when I saw them again they were naked and like but I had totally hadn't noticed that they were naked because it was just so natural to them it was just how they were they yeah. were meant to be but they looked really odd wearing their t-shirt you know so I think yeah 
yeah we and you know so they don't even think about walking around barefoot with nothing on and you know now we kind of think oh god we don't want to get our clothes dirty that dirty touch this don't touch that all the scary things that are gonna I don't know eat you or something <laughs> it's just it's interesting we've lost that connection completely yeah there's a wonderful book that I always recommend to people it's an anthropology book but I recommend it to people as a a, a child rearing book and it's called The Continuum Concept, which was written by a French anthropologist studying tribes in the Amazon. And look for that as well. <laughs> it, it, it's an amazing book for anyone who's raising children. That is the one book I would recommend because it, 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 it goes into really clear detail about how they are with their children, how they relate to their children and how the children relate to each other. Mm -hmm. in that kind of tribal setting and there's so much we can learn from that that we've yeah. lost yeah I'll look that up <laughs> well, that's great thank you very much for your time oh you're very welcome interesting. I think um, there's a lot of inf good information there for people to, to take away and put into practice hopefully <laughs> yeah oh I hope so yeah well it's lovely talking to you you too um, thanks right take care bye yeah.